Welcome to the Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Paul Etterling. I am the lead pastor of the Westerville Free Will Baptist Church. We would appreciate it if you would like, share, comment, and rate this podcast. You can also subscribe to our podcast from the platform you use to listen to podcasts. This will help our podcast become more discoverable in the podcast universe. If you would like to know more about our church, we invite you to visit us on the web at westervillechurch.org. Recently, the Westerville Free Will Baptist Church celebrated 60 years of ministry in Westerville. This is the first of four bonus podcasts, which will include the four sermons given during that celebration. Today's speaker is Pastor Mike Mounts. He is the pastor of the Harrison Free Will Baptist Church in Minford, Ohio. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor Mike and the Harrison Church, a link to their website is included in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Now let's join today's sermon. Let me just say that uh, it's truly an honor to be a part of uh, Westerville's 60th anniversary. It really is. And it truly is a reunion. And uh, I know that this isn't everyone yet. And uh, of course, uh, there have been those who have gone home to be with the Lord. And I really envy them. I've discovered the order I get, the more homesick I get, not only to go to heaven, but to see my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, it's also a tremendous honor, a privilege to have spent 15 of my 30 years of full-time uh, ministry as your pastor. And uh, we look back and we appreciate that time and thank the Lord. Uh, it would really be very, very easy to reminisce right now. And uh, there is so much to say. And then when you start naming names, you're definitely going to leave someone out. And I don't want to do that. Um, let me just mention uh, the founding pastor, Brother Delmer. Uh, I always had the utmost respect for Brother Delmer, uh, even be, before I came, became pastor of the Westerville Church, and always had a, a, a just a, a good name across the denomination and, and here in Ohio, and had the utmost respect for him, and uh, of course, Anna Lee, and the time spent with him. Um, they continued to, to attend the, the Westerville Church unless he was preaching somewhere, and just appreciate that time with Brother Delmer and Anna Lee, and it's good to be with you tonight. Let's open our Bibles, if we would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and uh, I know the game starts at 8 o'clock, so uh, if, if, even if, no matter what, you're not going to get home in time to see the kickoff, so um, I would imagine, you know, you're all, we're all living in the 21st century, you're DVRing it, I would hope. Um, but Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, let's look at verses 1 through 6, okay? The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Literally means adulterating the word getting ahead of myself, that's exactly what the false apostles were doing, these false teachers were doing. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And Paul said, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
whose minds the God of this age has blinded, Satan himself, you do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And Paul said, for we do not preach ourselves. Paul says, I don't preach about myself, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, as he did in creation who has now shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Paul sent me the theme and the specific passage that he wanted me to preach from, as well as the title of tonight's message, Christ, the Light of the Gospel, my mind immediately went to the purpose of Paul's writing this second letter to the Corinthians. Of all of Paul's letters... This letter is the most personal. And just to lay the groundwork, in just a few short years after Paul had established the church at Corinth, false teachers, that is, self-appointed apostles, had already crept in to undermine the work of the Apostle Paul and his mission team. Satan wasted no time. These false teachers knew exactly where to attack and how to attack. Where to better start than to attack God's messenger, Paul himself. Simply put, they attacked the man, his message, his motives, his ministry, and even his mental capacity. These false apostles had convinced many in the church at Corinth that Paul himself was a false apostle. They said that he didn't meet the criteria nor have the the necessary credentials of that of an apostle. The very things that they were accusing Paul of they themselves were guilty of. Needless to say, Paul was a broken and disheartened man. Yes, he was greatly concerned about the Corinthians and how they viewed and accepted him. Of course he would be. But he was more concerned with the spiritual well-being of the church and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And although it was totally out of character for Paul to defend himself, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter in his defense. So to silence his critics and to refute their false allegations. But do you know what's interesting? And of course, what I'm going to share with you shouldn't surprise you. Out of the 257 verses of 2 Corinthians, Paul makes 97 references to Jesus if you include the pronouns. You see, Paul makes reference to Christ in every 2.6 verses. Even in Paul's letter of defense, Jesus is central and predominant. What better defense... What better defender to have than Jesus himself? 
He kept pointing them and wanted them to keep looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. While the false teachers were promoting themselves, Paul was promoting and preaching Jesus Christ. And just as a diamond and its many facets reflect the light resulting in in great brilliance, so we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there are so many facets to Christ. By the way, I discovered this. For more brilliance from a diamond, there must not be any dark areas within the diamond. And as we will see, there were absolutely no dark areas, no sin whatsoever in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. By the way, when we speak of the glory of God, when we speak of the glory of God, it refers to the the sum total of all of His attributes and perfections. All that He is. And so it is in Christ, in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily or in body form. Therefore, the glory of God can be seen in the face of Jesus Christ, first of all, regarding His position. Regarding His position. The Apostle John wrote these words in John 1.1, and Neil's going to deal with this tomorrow night. He wrote, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The phrase with God carries with it the idea that that the Word, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was in continual and eternal, deep and intimate fellowship with the Father. In fact, it can literally be translated, He was face to face with God. The Word, the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity was in constant communion with the Father. Jesus is truly co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent with the Father. That truth makes all that follows even more amazing. Secondly, we also see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and His incarnation. John wrote, and the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. John said, we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Of all things, and I hope I never ever get over this, that God visited planet earth in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal God entered into time and space. God who is spirit took upon Himself human but not sinful flesh. The transcendent God dwelt among us. The invisible God became visible. He who is truly God became truly man. The Creator of all things became our Savior. He is God incarnate. He is grace and truth personified as John wrote. 
He truly was an Emmanuel and is Emmanuel, God with us. And by the way, let me just remind all of us of something. You see, Jesus didn't come to this earth in the form of a full-grown man, did he? Did he? He entered the human race through birth, a virgin birth, listen, to truly be a descendant of Adam. The first man, Adam, through his disobedience, brought sin into the human race, and thus physical, spiritual, and eternal death. And from that day forward, every man and woman has been in desperate need of a Redeemer. But such a one, a Redeemer, would have to be of the human race. The Redeemer would have to be a near relative. Someone next of kin. A kinsman Redeemer as described in the book of Ruth. But who in the world of Adam's race would even qualify? How could someone who needs a Redeemer qualify to be a Redeemer? We needed someone who could well represent fallen man and yet be without sin Himself. On the other hand, God needed someone to fully represent Himself to satisfy His holy and righteous standard. That's exactly the miracle of Christmas, is it not? God did enter into the human race in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Son of God entered into the human race and He became the Son of Man. Regarding His humanity, we also see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in His indistinction. By the way, that is a word. I had trouble finding this, but there it is. In the Gospel according to Isaiah, we read these words that well describe Jesus as the suffering servant. For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, And as a root out of dry ground, he has no what? Form or comeliness. No stately form or splendor. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. When Jesus came to this earth in the form of a little babe, he he came in the likeness of men in the appearance as a man. Jesus had a human nature, but not a sinful nature. And as a baby, he looked like all the other Jewish babies. And as a little boy, he looked like all the other little Jewish boys. There wasn't a certain aura about him, nor was there a halo around his head, in spite of what the Christmas cards in fact. Even a halo around Mary and Joseph. But anyway, as a man, he looked like all the other Jewish men. He looked completely ordinary. But when he came into the world, all the angels worshipped him. 
When the shepherds came to Bethlehem, they found the babe lying in a manger, just as the angel had said. And when the shepherds went back, they glorified God for all the things that they had heard and seen. When Joseph and Mary brought the baby Jesus into the temple, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God because the Savior of the world had come. Anna also coming into the temple that very moment. She gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. When the wise men finally arrived in Bethlehem to see Jesus, they fell down and worshipped Him. You see, His true identity was visible only, listen, through the eye of faith. You see, through their unbelief, the religious elite of Jesus' day, as well as most of those from Rome, failed to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And after investing, investigating all the claims of Jesus regarding His Messiahship, the religious leaders and the rulers found that He did not meet their standard. He did not meet their standards of what Messiah ought to be. They rejected Him. They disallowed him. The songwriter said it like this. Through the years you've made it clear that the time of Christ was near. Though the people couldn't see what Messiah ought to be. Though your word contained the plan, they just could not understand. Now note this. Your most awesome work was done through the frailty of your son. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ at His transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, that inner circle, were permitted to get a a peek, just a peek of the visible glory of Jesus Christ. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became as white as the light. We also see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ by the way, I like, I like all of these different facets, but I, facets, but I really like this one in his determination. Luke writes, now it came to pass when the time had come for him, that is Jesus, to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke takes us on that journey with Jesus and to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus was fully determined not only to go to Jerusalem, but ultimately to go to the cross. He had set His face like a flint toward the cross. That's how Isaiah described it. And it was for this very cause that He came into this world. And I'm so glad of this. Nothing or no one could deter Him, distract Him, or even delay Him. Amen? As we move along, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in His supplication and submission. Perhaps this particular passage, and I don't want to insult anyone, but I am including myself. Perhaps we're all too familiar with these words of Jesus. Hopefully we can look at them tonight with fresh eyes and a receptive heart. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Then he said to them, he said to Peter, James, and John, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He said to them, stay here and watch with me. And then he went a little farther and note this, and he fell on his face and prayed saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In the eternal counsel of God, before the foundation of the world, Jesus had already agreed and submitted to the Father's will. Not just to die, but to bear and to die for the sins of the world. And it is at this point, as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours away from the cross, that he reaffirms his total submission to fully carry out his Father's will. Let me just remind us all of something once again. It it wasn't the, the cup of suffering Jesus recoiled from. It was the cup of separation. You see, sin and death were totally alien to Jesus. While in Gethsemane, we, we begin to, he began to feel the weight of all the sins of all of humanity. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. There in the garden before he even gets to the cross. But nothing could be as severe as separation from the Father. And although he began to feel the agony of bearing the sins of the world in Gethsemane, it took Calvary to atone for our sins. Where he encountered the full measure of God's wrath for our sins. Therefore, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in His separation. Matthew writes, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He is separated from the Father. In regards to the crucifixion of Christ, there was far more that took place that day than just the physical and the visible. The physical torment that Jesus endured, it was truly agonizing. It was Excruciating. That's a word that was that was uh, that describes the pain of the cross. It means the pain out of the cross. It was excruciating. This pain was real. Up to this point, it had primarily been about what man had been doing. But during these three hours of darkness, something was transpiring. Listen, between heaven and earth. It was during this time that God was judging all of the sin of the entire human race, 
past, present, and future in the person of His Son. Just as our sin caused a breach with fellowship, in fellowship with God, it was still our sin that caused a breach in fellowship between the Father and the Son. He became our sin bearer and our substitute. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah writes in reference to Christ, He was smitten by God and afflicted. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He has put Him to grief as His soul was made an offering for sin. Paul wrote, for he, that is God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus did not become sinful. He did not become a sinner. But our sins were placed upon him, imputed to him, credited to him. During this time, however, he did not cease to be God. Jesus did not cease to be the Son of God. But He did for a while cease to know the intimacy that He had had in all of eternity, this fellowship with the Father. As He bore the sins of the world in the full fury of God's wrath for every sinner. Please, please... As I say this, again, I don't want to insult or offend anyone, but many times we get caught up in the physical aspects of the cross and we miss out what God was doing. John MacArthur writes, he said, it was a punishment so severe that a mortal man could spend eternity in the torments of hell And still he would not have begun to exhaust the divine wrath that was heaped on Christ at the cross. And because Jesus fully met and fully satisfied the just demands of holy God regarding man's sin and payment through his death on Calvary, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in his resurrection. In His ascension and in His, what? Exaltation. Today, Christ is seated at the right hand of God in all of His power, His glory and majesty. Amen? He is Lord. I want to close with this song, and I love this song, and hopefully it will just sort of bring all of this together. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And one day when He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to sing, bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I would like to, right now in way of invitation, to consider the words of Paul in this particular passage. Paul in this passage reminds us that the reason that more people don't come to Christ is because Satan himself, the God of this present evil world system, continues to blind the mind of the unbeliever. You see, the false apostles were criticizing Paul and regarding this, you know, Paul, you, you know, why, why don't you have, why, why aren't there more people who come to Christ? And Paul addresses it right here. It sure wasn't because he wasn't preaching the gospel. Is that right? You see, Satan uses anything and everything to blind the minds of those without Christ of their own sinfulness. And their own separation from God. But he also blinds their minds from the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. He doesn't want you, if you're here tonight and you're unsaved, he doesn't want you to get even a glimpse of Jesus and his work at Calvary for you. He doesn't even want you to get a peek just a quick glance who Jesus is and what He's done for you. Do you realize that Satan will even use religion? You see, religion in and of itself is man trying to get to God. But true Christianity is God coming to man. I've... I've talked with folks, and I, 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 I've had people say to me, well, I'm religious. Well, boy, what, that, that can mean anything and everything, right? I, I even remember one lady saying to me, well, I'm spiritual. Well, what does that mean? You see, you can be very, very religious and very spiritual and still not know God. And still not know His Son, Jesus Christ. He'll use religion. That is what you believe. He'll use self-righteousness. That is what you are. Or at least one thinks that they are. That, that we can somehow find favor with God by our own good works and our own human efforts and our own human achievements. And Satan's fully satisfied as we continue to think that. But then he'll even use one's reputation. What others may say of us. Well, folks say that I'm a pretty good person. Well, folks like me. They speak well of me. 
Do you realize that Satan will use all of these things and other things to keep an individual from even getting a glimpse of Jesus and his work at Calvary? But tonight, if you're here and you are unsaved, and if you have come to see and realize that you are truly a sinner, that you're truly separated from God, and at the same time you've gotten, gotten a glimpse of the goodness, the grace, and the glory of Jesus Christ, that means, hey, that's good news because that means that God Himself has turned the light on for you. So that you can see, clearly see, the way to Him. And that means He's drawing you to Himself. When we begin to see our awful sinfulness. And at the same time, see an amazing Savior. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. As He draws lost men and women, boys and girls, to Himself. Tonight... If you don't know Christ, I mean, you don't really know Him. You know about Him, but the question is, do you really know Him personally and deeply and intimately? Do you have a relationship and a fellowship with Him? If not, you can this evening. You can personally trust Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. Thank you once again for downloading this bonus podcast of the 60th anniversary celebration of the Westerville Free Will Baptist Church. If you would be so kind to take a moment to like, share, rate, comment, and subscribe to this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. This will help us become more discoverable in the podcast universe. Be sure to download tomorrow's bonus edition of the 60th anniversary celebration from the Westerville Free Will Baptist Church. Tomorrow, we'll feature a message from Dr. Neil Gilliland.